Thank you for joining us today for the ministry of the word at Foundation Church. We pray that what you hear today will be as much of a blessing for you as it was for the people of our congregation. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad that you're all here today in the house of the Lord. You know, sometimes it is a fight just to get to church, right? Sometimes we got to fight against different things. We had the police actually stop some people on the way here, but they still made it. And uh, we find ourselves sometimes, oftentimes as parents, you know, you get a bunch of kids. The next thing you know, you're fighting in the house and you're fighting to get your you know, stuff ready for the meal and all this stuff goes on, right? It's a fight, but we got to keep fighting. Amen. David said this in Psalm 18, I will love the O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust my buckler and the horn of my salvation. And he is my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me. The floods of the ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. And in my distress, everybody say, in my distress. In my distress, I called on the Lord and cried unto my God, and he heard my voice out of his temple. How many of you know what that's like? In our distress, we call, and he hears us. And my cry came before him, even to his ears. And then the earth shook, and it trembled. And the foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken, because God was angry. Do you know when we cry out sometimes, God gets angry, not at us, but against those who are afflicting us. Then went smoke up out of God's nostrils, fire out of his mouth, devoured, coals were kindled by it, and he bowed the heavens also, and he came down, and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon the cherub, and he did fly. He flew upon the wings of the wind. That means God hurried to our aid. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones, coals, and fire. And the Lord thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire, yea, he sent out arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomfited them, and the channels of the water were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of thy nostrils. He sent from above, and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. Kind of like, you know, he brought me out, right? He, he pulled me up out of the water. I was drowning. How many of you know what that feels like? Hey, I needed you, Lord. And I was like sinking, Lord. He delivered me from a strong enemy, from them that hated me, from them. Who were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth into a large place and delivered me because he delights in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands as he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was upright before him and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. 
With the mercy thou shalt show thyself merciful, and with the upright man thou shalt show thyself upright. With the pure thou wilt show thyself pure, and with the forward thou shalt show thyself forward. For thou wilt save an afflicted people, and will bring down high looks. For thou wilt light my candle, and the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by thee have I run through a troop, and my God I have leaped over a wall." As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those who trust him. For who is God, save the Lord? And who is our rock, save God? It is God that girds me with strength. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like hinds feet or like the feet of deer. And he sets me upon high places. He teaches my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken in my arms. Thou hast given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath hold me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me, that my feet do not slip. We don't want to backslide, do we? We don't want to go backwards. Sometimes uh, we think we're doing good, and all of a sudden we begin to get distracted, and we begin to slide. Let us pray as we spend the day today learning and thinking about what it means for God to teach us to war. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for using us, Lord, for letting us be a part of your great conquest of the world. We pray today as we go to your word that you would speak to us, that as we ask forgiveness for our sins, that you would Forgive us and cleanse us. Wash us from our deep stains of sin. Lord, we are bound many times by our addictions and by our sins. And I pray that you would free us from them. Lord, that we might uh, walk free in the light, not burdened with sin. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said. standing for just a little bit here. I'm going to read a very short text. I'm going to be preaching all of Psalm 144, and I'm going to read the first two verses here. My sermon today is called Teach Our Hands to War, and I'm going to read the first two verses of Psalm 144. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the great gift of it to us. I pray today that as I speak your word from the Psalms, Lord, that you would speak through me to those that are here, messages that they need to hear that encourage them about what's going on in their lives, that we might make application to your word to each of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. You know, some things are worth fighting for, Amen. Amen? Some things are worth fighting for. Some things aren't. 
I'm kind of an easygoing guy and Oh, do you want to go here? You want to do that? Yeah, I don't care. Whatever. No big deal. But there are some things, and I'll tell you right now, I'm not real casual about. Some things are, are a big deal, and they're worth fighting for. They're worth getting in there and giving it all you got. Truth is, anything worth having is worth working for and fighting for, and that's what it takes to get it, and that's what it takes to keep it. This is true within our own personal lives, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our church, as well as in the world. There are times we might fight in all of these places, and we need God to teach our fingers to fight and our hands to war. You might think, I don't know, I, I thought we quit fighting. I thought Jesus said to turn the other cheek. You know... He did, in a certain context, he did say to turn the other cheek. But that is not the context of the whole of the Christian life. In fact, the whole of the Christian life is that we are at war and we should be fighters. We're not fighting for ourselves, though. We're not fighting for, you know, to be respected or to be loved or to be appreciated or whatever. We're fighting for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We fight that our children don't grow up to be liars and thieves and uh, immoral and ungodly people who end up destroying their own lives, right? We fight that uh, our relationship with our wife or our husband doesn't just go by the wayside. Lord, teach our fingers to fight and our hands to war. We believe that God is sovereign over all things and that all power comes from him. But that does not mean that we stand by and we wait and we watch for God to put things into our hands without lifting a finger. We watch as our boats fill with water, but never start bailing them out. That's not what God calls us to do. You know, we're out, me and, me and Brother Chris, we're out there fishing, and all of a sudden our, our boat begins to fill with water, and we go, you know, I hope God can save us. And we got a, a bucket right there. What are we going to do, guys? We're going to bail it out. We're going to start bailing out. Now, in the end, God is sovereign over our lives, but that doesn't mean... Uh, that we stop bailing it out of the boat. We're going to bail it out of the boat as much as we can. We don't sit in the water and not swim, Jason, right? We, we're going to go, hey, I'm in the water. I got, I'm going to tread water as long as I can, but Lord, save me because I'm going to run out of me. No, we have to fight to survive and fight to thrive. God's word is never taught that what we do doesn't matter quite the contrary. In the same sense that God is sovereign, we are responsible. We are responsible for our sins, and we're also responsible for what we do with our words and works and what we don't do. As much as they are ordained by God, they are still our words and our works. We sin when we do wrong, and we sin when we don't do right. Do you know that just as many of the sins we commit are the things we don't do? They're sins of commission, right? Those are things you do. You know, we hurt somebody. We don't love them. We steal. We're unkind. These are sins where we're committing. But 
many and most of the sins that we do are things we don't do. God says to do this, but we don't do it. All it takes for evil to triumph is for good and godly men to stand by and do nothing and not to fight. When I make a friend, when someone is coming to Christ, I don't sit by and, and you know, say, oh, well, you know, I, I hope they come to church and I hope they end up doing. No, I'm not. Hey, you know, someone recently said about me, said, well, if I go to this church and I don't come, he may come to my house. He may come to my house and drag me to church. And you might go, well, you know, you can't save people. I'm not trying to save people. I'm trying to do what God gives me hands to do. That's what God calls us to do. He calls us to fight. He calls us to get involved. He calls for us to get out and do the work. Yes, one plants and one waters. Who gives the increase? God. But two-thirds of that is what? One plants. One waters. And if no one's planting and no one's watering, God isn't going to give increase to it. It takes a sower to sow. The Bible tells us that the word of God goes forth and it brings faith, right? And it says, well, how can it happen if someone doesn't go preach? And how can the preacher go unless he is sent? So you got the people who go and the people who send them. And then you got God giving faith. Once again, two thirds of this equation is what we do. I can tell you right now, if nobody in this church is out telling people about Jesus and inviting them to church and trying to talk to them about changing their life, I'll tell you what, those seeds of faith are not going to miraculously grow. Somebody's got to be speaking God's word. God loved and used Moses, but God also judged him, right? This week I revisited a strange story from the book of Exodus chapter four. And, you know, as I was doing it, I, I really felt the Holy Spirit like hovering over me. And I really wanted to know like, what, why in the world are we going to tell this story? This is not a story I would normally even tell or pick from the Bible, but it just kept coming to me. So somebody out here needs to hear this story. You may know the story or you may have never heard this story. It's not one that everyone tells a lot, but we need to bring this to our mind today as we study Psalm 144. So God loved Moses enough to save him from death. He had him raised in Pharaoh's house. You guys know the story, right? And in Exodus chapter four, God appears before Moses in the burning bush. And he tells them, I need you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, right? You guys remember this? And he's like, I can't go. I'm too weak and, and, and I stutter and they don't want to hear me and I'm wanted for murder. This is not really, I don't want to go to Pharaoh. He says, yeah, you're going to go. And he's like, well, what if they don't believe me? And so he shows him miracles. He shows him if he puts his hand in his, uh, his outfit, you know, and he brings it back out. It's leprous. And then if he puts it back in, he brings it back out and it's whole. And he's like, wow. He said, what, what do you got in your hand? He's got this stick, you know, he's like, throw it on the ground. See what happens. It turns to a serpent. He's like, wow. And he goes, you're going to go and you're going to perform miracles. Okay. Now, what most people don't know is after this incredible encounter at the burning bush, the very next thing happens is what I'm going to tell you about. And it's a strange story, Jason. 
The very next scripture, he leaves the burning bush and he's talking to God. He leaves that and all of a sudden he's on his way back to Midian where his wife and his, his father-in-law live in, in Midian. And he stops by this place to stay the night. And it says, and God shows up to kill Moses. <laughs> like, this is kind of an odd scripture. He's just told him to go to Pharaoh. He's told him to go and, and tell him to let my people go. And the next verse is God shows up at a hotel to kill Moses. Strange story, is it not? Now, the story's kind of vague about the details, but I can tell you what. There was a couple people in the story to whom the details were not vague at all. And their names were Moses and Zipporah. Everybody say Moses and Zipporah. Zipporah is the name of Moses' wife. Not a lot of people know her name. We had a cat one time we named that because we want to remember Zipporah's name. <laughs> Moses and Zipporah, and they've got two little boys with them. And they're here at the Hotel Egypt or whatever this thing's called. And they're there and God shows up to kill Moses. Now, it doesn't tell us what they were talking about on the trip. It doesn't tell us anything. But it says that while God is making it clear some way, I don't know if he appeared with an angel with a flaming sword or, or he grabbed Moses and he, and he had a, a, a knife to his neck. Something they knew Moses was about to die. I don't know. It doesn't tell. It just says God came and he was going to kill Moses. So you know what happens? Zipporah goes and grabs one of their children. She takes a sharp rock and she circumcises one of their little boys and she throws the piece of cut off meat and she throws it at the feet of Moses and she basically cusses him out a little bit, all right? And I won't, I won't give you my rendition of what it was like, but let me tell you, this was no happy moment. This was a moment of great conflict. So what in the earth is going on in this story? As I told you, the details are a bit vague, but, and they lead to a great deal of speculation. But one thing is for sure, God appears to settle some sort of a dispute between Moses and his wife. God has told Moses or his wife or done something to show that he's going to kill him. Now, every Jew had to be circumcised. Do you kids know on what day? Anybody know? Remember this? On the, on the eighth day, right? When a little baby's eight years old, they must be circumcised if they're a Jew. And when God made the covenant with Abraham, he said, if you don't do that, they're not Jews. So you got to do that. Well, it seems that Moses' wife knew what was going on. And so when she does this and she circumcises the little boy and yells at her husband, we don't, we're not really, he, she says some stuff. We, we can even read it. Uh, you can read the story later. But the point isn't really, the point is that a husband and a wife are fighting over something. Okay. Now I tried to figure this out and I don't know if because she was Midian, Ashley, I don't know. That Now they had two boys. She doesn't circumcise both of them. She circumcises one of them. And it seems to me that it's the, it's the newest one. It's the younger one, okay? 
This is, I, it's a long time to get to this, all right? But the point being is, is something happened. And what I think might have happened is that when the first baby was born, this Midianite woman, she never heard of circumcision, doesn't know anything about it. And Moses circumcises the first one. And could you imagine being a woman who doesn't know what circumcision is and your little baby is bleeding and crying and he's eight days old and, you, and she's probably like, uh, you ain't doing that to another one of my babies. Not in my house, not on my watch. You ain't doing that ever again. Because if this really was about circumcision and God being displeased, then he would have had him circumcised both of them, but he doesn't, he just does one. So in my mind, it means that the other one must have already been circumcised, but it doesn't really give us the details. Now there's another, there's another uh, idea of what might be going on, Sally, and it's that Moses was kind of scared to do it or he didn't want to do it or whatever. He knew he should do it, but he wouldn't do it. And the woman says, all right, if you ain't going to do the right thing, then I'm going to do it. Okay. So either God's going to kill her husband because he won't do right, or God's going to kill Moses because his wife won't let him do the right thing. Do you see what I'm saying? And finally, Moses, I can just picture this. Moses has got, you know, God's got a knife to Moses' throat and he's looking over at his wife going, it's up to you, baby. You won't let us circumcise him, but apparently the Lord's going to circumcise me, going to cut my head right off. And that's going to be the end of you and me. And then what are you going to do? Right? So she gets mad and she's like, ah, you know, and she yells at him. You're a bloody husband, a bloody blind bridegroom, you know, and she, she's mad about this whole thing. But the point being here, and I, I, I like the vagueness of the story, but the point is that there's something that's worth fighting for, right? So maybe she's fighting that her husband might live. Maybe Moses was fighting to circumcise their child. Maybe she was fighting to make sure Moses was being a good man and doing what he should. Okay, are you seeing all these things? These things are worth fighting for. You know, when I do something that my wife thinks that would not please God, do you think she sits by and goes, well, you know, he's my husband. I just have to trust the Lord that it's going to be okay. No, let me tell you what my wife does. My wife goes, hey, aren't you a man of God? What's wrong with you? Is this what you're going to be? Is this what you're going to do? And you go, well, that's not right. Women are supposed to just, you know, submit to their husbands and whatever they say, go along. Oh, no. Yes, they are supposed to submit. I'm not, I'm not trying to get around the scripture, but I don't think you understand what submission means. When a woman is fighting for her husband to do right, she's doing right. Okay? I'll give you an example. There was another time in the Bible where there's another fight between two people that were people of God, Abraham and Sarah. So Sarah had this great idea. Let's get my handmaiden, this young woman who's the servant in our home and we don't have any children and Abraham can be with her and they can have children and then we will have children to pass on our stuff to the next generation. And so they have little baby Ishmael. Well, by the time he's 13 years old, God shows him this was not the way. Sarah gets pregnant. Sarah gives birth. She's got this little baby uh, Isaac, right? And here they are, and the woman, this woman is in their house, and she's laughing at her. Oh, she's an 80-year-old woman giving birth to a baby. Ha, ha, ha. I'm young. I can give birth to 10 more. You old woman, you got this baby. She's making fun of her. And Sarah goes, you get that woman 
out of my house and you get that baby out of my house, that is not going to be our uh, one to inherit what's right. What's, who's going to inherit what's right is going to be my baby that come from me and my husband, not this other woman. And it says, Abraham was mad. He was not happy about this situation. And God intervenes and he says, Abraham, your wife is right. And you need to do what she says. She was fighting. Everybody say she was fighting. You know, when we love people, we fight for them and we fight for what's right. Strange stories to share today. I hope they mean something to some of you. When we get into Psalm 144, we need to understand this. Psalm 144 is a fighting psalm. You know how football teams have fight songs, right? You know, pom, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, you know, this is a fight song. Psalm 144 is like, okay, guys, we're going to get out there and we're going to beat the enemy. We're going to crush him. We're, you know, that's what Psalm 144 is. Psalm 144 is a hype song. Okay. Because these guys had to get hyped up. Could you imagine being, could you imagine this? You got a sword in your hand and there's like a hundred thousand crazy psycho Amalekites, Egyptians, Philistines, whatever. And they got uh, chariots and horses and, and gear and shields. And we're like, you see those guys over there in the morning, we're going to run as fast as we can at them. And we're going to, and we're going to get into it. Now, maybe some of you think, oh, that would be fun. I can tell you right now, it would be something. I don't think fun would be the word. And they like to make it fun in the movies, right? You know, these guys are not even worried. They're just, no big deal. That's because they're like getting paid $8 million for their role and they know they're not going to die. Okay. So that's why, well, this is fantastic, you know, but much of our fighting for right happens though in our homes and in our own community. We are at war with the forces of evil for the dominion of this world. The world belongs to our King Jesus, and we wage war with him, subduing everything under his feet, starting with our own flesh that does not want to do what God says it must. You know, the Bible tells us we need to mortify or we need to kill our flesh. Our flesh wants things. We can't let our flesh have what it wants. What we've got to do is we've got to do what's right. Psalm 144, like I said, it's a fight psalm, so let's jump into it. The inspired heading is written by, it says, of David. David was a fighter, right? Isn't that what he's known for? He was a singing shepherd boy who had the heart of God, but he was a fighting man with the courage that comes with faith. It doesn't matter how old you are or how big you are, and I had this David was not probably a little boy like that. You know, some people tell the story, you know, David is like Liam's size and he goes out and he fights. No, David really wasn't, okay? But this, you know, one of the masters, this is in Venice, you know, on a wall somewhere. It's one of the masters painted this. But I wanted this because it is really the way it is. We go out to battle, there's Goliath's sword in his hand over there. And the truth is, is we've got something to offer God, but it isn't much. But God doesn't need much. He just needs whatever we are. He doesn't need us to be big and strong. And so, no, David didn't probably look like a little girl, and he probably wasn't 
uh, 10 years old, okay? David was probably more 18, 19 years old. He wasn't a big man who had been in battle, but he was certainly not a sissy, okay? Uh, but we're kind of a bunch of sissies who need to learn to war. It doesn't matter how old you are or how big you are or how many battles you've been in. Just like David, who could not wear the armor of King Saul, as he walked out on the field of Elah, slinging his hand before the defying Goliath, David knew when it was time to fight. And this was it. He knew he had used his youthful hands to deliver his sheep out of the hold of a lion and a bear and that God would be with him as he stood for the sheep and for God's pasture that day. And so David goes out. What's he going out there to do? Everybody say, he went out there to fight. You know what they could have said, Jonathan? They, they could have said, you know what? If God's really good, God could just send a lightning bolt and hit Goliath and take him out. Didn't happen like that. Someone had to go out there and they had to go out with what they had and what they knew how to use and what they've been practicing with to fight. You see, we fight with those who defy God and God's people. We don't cower and back down and acquiesce just because they say black is white or white is black. Their so-called science may say that only fools believe God made the world and that there are as many sexes as there are letters and names and that God's definition of divisions don't really exist. But I'll tell you right now, you can think your thoughts if you want to, but God doesn't have to go along in agreement, and we don't have to pretend we agree with them either. I won't be intimidated into silence. I will speak God's word and God's truth, the only one reality that doesn't change. God is not a transitioning God. He changes not. He's not a God who bends to the wind, the whim and the will of the people of this earth and shifts into the shape that pleases them. He is the solid rock upon which everything that cannot be shaken must be built or it will fall. These people can build a great society on their new ideas, but the storms will come and cast the mighty down. They can rail at the rock of God himself, but they will be crushed to powder by his immutable laws. They may grow like weeds, but they will wither in the noonday sun of his glory and be blown like the chaff into the furnace of the future. David, the fighter, wrote these words that we read today, and he lived a life fighting for God's people. And it is in this we should follow in his train. As we get into verse 1, it says, Blessed be the Lord, my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. This is the opening line of this fight song, of this pep song, of this, okay, we're going to get ready, we're going to go out to battle song. David comes out of the gate guns blazing in this song in prayer of praise like a man who just kicked the doors open at an old western saloon. You can picture it in one of those old movies. Boom! I'm here. This is David. David is getting with it. He was strong. He was quick to the draw. He was confident, but he ultimately knew that his strength came from God. He had used his own hand to fight many battles in the dust and blood, but it was the hand of God he knew that taught him and guided him as he fought, swinging and spinning with one, maybe two swords, people dying all around him, arrows flying. David did that a lot. 
Even in battle, he saw the goodness of God. In the adrenaline of the fight, he acknowledged that God was his master and instructor. Even if the women were singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands, David knew it was God that gave him the victory. He reinforces this idea in verse 2 when he says, my goodness. See, God is good. We are not. The Bible says, in us dwells no good thing, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that even really seeks after God. But God is my goodness and my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, in whom do I trust? You see, David had all of these things, but he's saying, no, yeah, I have them all and I use them all, but, but my real shield isn't the one I'm holding God was David's goodness in his fortress. He would not rely on his own righteousness, his own strength. He knew he was a sinner and he was, and that, that blood was on his hands. Our fights for right are not based on how good we've been. You are not holier than your husband who has a struggle. Your wife who won't do the right thing, you're not better than her. We don't fight for right. For ourselves, but for God's standard of righteousness, no matter whether we like it, this right or responsibility. Some of the blood that David shed in his lifetime was innocent blood. He owned a shield and no doubt when he became king, he even had an armor bearer backing him up. We all have within ourselves our gifts and talents and abilities. And we offer them to God unflinchingly. God, though, was David's shield. See, he had a shield, but God was David's shield. That didn't mean that he never raised his man-made shield in battle. He most certainly did, but God was David's shield. His shield could save him from the arrow that flies by day and the pestilence that comes by night. I can tell you right now, if you're in a battle, if you think, you know, they show these silly movies, you know, and these guys are fighting and arrows are going by and they're catching them in their hands and all that. Folks, you can't even see an arrow. I mean, it ain't quite as fast as a bullet, but it's not like you can see it coming and, you know, uh, grab it and get out of the way and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's, so when you're fighting, I mean, and you're focused, I mean, can you imagine, Titus, you're focused, you're fighting a guy. How focused can you be on the guy, you know, 50 yards over here firing an arrow at you? You, you. What is ultimately preserving David's life? God is. Does that mean he isn't fighting? Does that mean he's not practicing? Does that not mean he doesn't have a shield? Oh, well, God's his savior. He doesn't even need a, a, a sword. He doesn't even need a shield or a helmet. Do you think he was, had a shield? Do you think he had a helmet? Yeah, he did. He wasn't trying to say because God is a shield, he didn't need to carry a shield. And I think sometimes this is the way we think. Oh, God's my shield. I'm cool. No. Hey, we got to be fighters. Death was close to David many times, but God was a shield and buckler. He had also built a magnificent palace with great defenses on Mount Zion in the old Jebusite fortress in Jerusalem. But it was the high tower of God's refuge that he knew no man could penetrate. David trusted in God alone. Some trust in horses, others chariots, or even themselves. But David's trust was in the Lord. He had conquered enemies, but he understood it was the Lord who had really subdued them. He had just allowed David to take part in this work. I have no doubt that David trained in the ways of war. He practiced throwing his javelin. He was an excellent archer who worked for the skills that he needed. This is how we fight before we fight. 
I think that we miss this. I, I really do. I think we miss that David literally physically fought. But he said God was his shield. God was his armor. God was his protector, not him. But still he protected himself. He practiced. We were talking about up here as the deacons gathered up here. You know, the reason David goes out against Goliath with his sling is because what, guys? He had practiced with that thing. How many kids, have, have you guys ever target practiced with your BB gun or with your, uh, you know, slingshot when you're a kid or whatever, right? You were in the military, probably did a whole lot of practicing. You know, why do you do that? So when the time comes, you, you, it's an instinct. It's, a, it's something you're good at. I remember my, me and my cousin used to practice, practice the bow. And one time we were practicing and a rabbit, probably 60 yards away, is running across a hillside. And he goes, and went right through the rabbit. And when you hunt, actually, he wasn't hunting. We were just practicing. But you have to have a blunt arrow or it won't kill. It'll just go straight through the rabbit. And it did. It went through the rabbit. And it got him just right because he ran a few steps like he was good, but he wasn't and then he died. But you don't just shoot a moving rabbit, okay, with your bow and arrow. That takes a whole lot of practice. And so David, I'm sure, was out there. He's throwing, he probably set up stones and got as far away as he could and phoom, tried to hit that thing. And so when the time came for him to do what God had called him to do, he could do it. I have no doubt David trained in the ways of war. He, he did all of these things. This is how we do our part in what God does through us. Whatsoever our hands find to do, we should do with all of our might. The outcome does not come by our might. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, by the prophet Zechariah. Those who do not practice will not be made perfect and mature in the wars that we fight with our enemies or the ones that we fight for good in our home. We need to be those who study war and learn to bring peace at home through strength, dwelling with our own wives and children in peace and prosperity. This is what it takes. It is a constant fight. It does not come easy. As so many of you know, you must do all that you can. It's how it works. God does not reward the lazy who do nothing or the fearful who fret. He rewards those who with faith do what they can do to the best of their abilities. Well done is what we long to hear because we have done something. God's word says that we are to contend. We are to fight for the faith. It says that we wrestle with unseen forces of darkness, with spiritual weapons and not carnal. But we fight. God gave Joshua and the children of Israel the promised land, but they had to take it. To remind him that ultimately God was the one who was doing it. He had them walk around the walls. Guys, do you know no battle's ever been won by anybody walking around walls ever before this or ever since? This is not good battle strategy. All right, let's not take any weapons. Let's just kind of walk around. And then on the last day, we'll walk around a lot. We'll go around seven times. And then we're going to go, ah, and we're going to blow trumpets. Folks, this was not great battle strategy. But you know what? God showed them. Now, all the battles after that, is that how he did? I would have been like, hey, this is what we're going to do in every town. But they don't because that's not what God tells them to do. They have to fight. 
Some of them die. To remind them that God was the one who gives victory, he led them around the walls of Jericho and would not let them fight the way they would have fought. This is how most of our battles are won through our actual fighting, but victory is always of the Lord. Verse three, Lord, he prays, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you take account of him? As David rejoiced in God's power and might, he wondered as he had before when he wrote Psalm 8, O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth who have set thy glories above the heaven. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. And then he says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him or that you help him? Why do you care about me, God? I'm a nobody from nothing. Nobody ever cared about me. Nobody loved me, God. Why do you love me? Why do you offer any care for us lowly creatures, sinners in your sight? You should smite the earth instead of saving us. Oh, Lord, but you have said you will teach our hands to war. And so we're going to fight for you. You said you're going to teach our fingers to fight. So we're going to fight for you. We're not going to fight for ourselves anymore. Did you ever ask God, why me? Why do you love me when no one else does? Why do you see and know all my sins and all my evil thoughts, but you still love me and you still want me? Why, God? You ever ask yourself that? That's what David was doing here. Verse four, man is like a vanity. His days are as a shadow that passes away. He's praying in humility. This is how we come before the Lord. You see, we come in humility, but we ask in boldness. Does that make sense? We are nothing before you, Lord. Man's like the grass that comes up and the sun arises and it's burned into oblivion. Lord, my days are few. They're full of trouble and vapor and I can't even hardly do anything, God. Lord, you are from everlasting. Verse five, bow the heavens down, O Lord. Come down, touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Lord, you're great. As you came down to deliver the law to Moses and you left the earth black, the mountain scorched with your heat, Lord. Lord, you come for me, just lonely old little old me. Cast forth your lightning, scatter them, shoot out arrows, destroy them. David had carried the ark before his army. As we carry forth your ark, powerful bolts of lightning come out, smashing and scattering the enemies, splintering their chariots. As their armies huddle together in fear, you strike again, and all who are touching are melted into one smoking mass of destruction. The Bible tells us that lightning came out of the ark. And I recently saw a story where 35 or 40 cows or maybe maybe 100 were under a tree in a storm and it hit one and it killed them all. So I was sort of picturing this happening in battle. Verse seven, send thy hand from above. Rid me, deliver me out of the great waters from the hand of strange children. Put your hands on mine today, Lord, as I go forth into battle. That's what we should be saying. Hey, put your hands on mine. Show me what to do. Deliver me with my own hands, but give me wisdom to direct my army. Give me endurance to brave the elements of fatigue. I have mastered my body and my mind to the best of my ability, Lord, but it will be you who sets me free and delivers me in this battle. This is what David is praying. 
The flood of the heathen will come to overcome me and you will be my ark of rescue, my barge of salvation. And with you, I know that I will prevail. You see, David was not merely psyching himself up. He was building up his faith, the faith of the men that would follow him into battle. This is often what we need to do to do the right thing when we are scared to act on what we know God wants us to do. Imagine what David was facing that day. If you could see your, if you could see, and I, I described this earlier, but if you could see the fires of your enemies camped in the valley and you knew soon you would be going to fight them, you would need a little encouragement too, I'm sure. God says this in his word, don't think it's strange considering the fiery trials that the soldiers of light endure as we, as though it were some strange thing. It would be stranger for God to tell us that we were in war for the whole world and not have resistance from our enemies. It's not a strange thing that for four years you haven't had a bumper, Bill, and today's the day the police want to notice it, try to, try to keep you from the house of God. Verse 8, whose mouth speaks vanity, their right hand is the right hand of falsehood. You know your enemies in mind, oh God. They talk big and they lie even bigger, but that's no problem for you, God. As we get to verse 9, he said, I will sing a new song to you, God, upon the psaltery, upon an instrument of ten strings. I will praise you. The mouths of the enemies are filled with lies and blasphemy against God, but my mouth will be filled with praise. I will praise you with my hands upon a ten-string instrument. Most likely it was a lyre that he was speaking of here. It's a like a harp. I will sing. And when we sing songs and play our instruments with skill, when we practice long hours to perfect our praise, we are using our fingers to fight and our hands to war. Vow, it's a way to fight. When you play your instrument, when you play it, when you learn to play it well so that the people of God can praise. This morning, Liam has this little ukulele and he's strumming it and he's hearing notes and dad, this sounds like this song. And, and they say in order to master an instrument, you have to have 10,000 hours of practice, but something happens about that time in the heart of the musician and he has mastered it. He, it, it takes him to a whole nother level. They speak hate, but we speak and we sing love. They accuse and divide and we lift up our voices in song. We are peacemakers who will be called the children of God. We don't just not do what they do. We do what they will never do. We must not be silenced from our praises or God will look to the rocks for his praise. And no rock is going to cry out in my place. You want to say that with me today? No rock is going to cry out in my place. So do you praise God wherever you go? Do you build people up with encouraging words or do you complain and gossip? God hates complaining because ultimately when you complain, you're complaining about God. If you don't have enough in your own eyes, you complain as if God doesn't care and know what you need. Look around at all that you have and give thanks. Refuse to use your lips for complaint and to cause trouble, but train them to serve the master. We war against the devil with our mouths and with our hands. Teach our hands to war and our fingers to fight. Sometimes it will be with a piano or the box drum or a guitar, a violin, or even a bass. At others, it will be by writing checks or pushing the give 
or the send button on your banking app. Real money often funds spiritual warfare. We sing, we fight, we play, we build. We build a house for our brothers and sisters to come out of the rain and to be in. And we do all this and we are part of the fight. Verse 10, it is he that giveth salvation unto kings and delivers David, his servant from the hurtful sword. Everybody say, to God be the glory. You know that song, to God be the glory, great things he has done. That's what David is doing right here. He's saying, God is this. When we win today, David was inspiring his troops. And I would like to inspire you today. When we win, it is God who has given us the battle. He has done for this, for me, as David was saying over and over again. And I believe he's going to do it again. If you need a good story of how God did it, we could not even imagine how he could do it. I hope that you have some of these stories in your hands where you can say, all right, I know we're up against a bad situation, but let me tell you what God did the last time we were here. And that's what David does. He begins to encourage his troops by telling them the story. After hearing a few of these stories, the courage begins to rise in the, the hearts of David's men. They begin to grow as we get up to do something, whatever we can, like little Lucy in the Narnia movie, our little pocket knife. You know, I never get that picture out of my mind. She the, 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 all the enemies of darkness that are there and she's on this bridge and she's this little tiny girl and she pulls out her little pocket knife. That's all she's got. And next thing you know, the, all the enemies shrinking back. Well, what Lucy doesn't know is behind her is Aslan. And they're like, oh, 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 oh. And, and Lucy's thinking, they're afraid of me. I got my little knife. And so she, she starts walking forward and they start walking back. Folks, that's us. He has the power of life and death. It is the power against the onslaught of the enemy to remember what God has given you and what he has done for you in your past, believing he will do it again. How he has given you grace when you have instead deserved judgment. How he has given you another opportunity to be here today in this church among the people who love you and will be there when you need them. When you're down for an eight count trying to get up, remember how he's done it before and he'll do it again. Verse 11, rid me and deliver me from the hand of the strange children whose mouth speaks vanity and their right hand is the right hand of falsehood. We got to give those people over to God and let God deal with them. Verse 12, that our sons may be as plants grown up in the youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace. It is a battle to raise godly children. It is a great labor to polish the stones of the house that God has given you. It takes diligent gardener to weed uh, the best the, 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 it, and get all the pests out and kill them and pull off the suckers off the tomatoes and water it just right. This is another way we fight by raising and training warriors by growing something good for God. Verse 13, that our garners may be full, affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our street. We pray that God will bless us because we understand that wealth in the hands of the godly is a powerful weapon against poverty and abuse, against foolishness and waste. When we have it, we can give to the poor and lend to the Lord. And with it, we can store up riches in heaven where they can never lose their investment power. We must fight for wealth. 
people are not just giving it up and giving it out very easily. Business is a fight, a fight for efficiency and advantage for the, for the kingdom of God. Much can be said about this, but we will pray day by day for God to teach our fingers to fight writing computer programs, managing retirement accounts, writing books and songs, educating our offspring. This is how we fight. Training up our children when they rise up, lie down, walk by the way, sit in our house, and every opportunity we have, they are worth fighting for in God's economy and your economy too. Verse 14, that our oxen may be strong and labor, that there be no breaking in or no going out, that there be no complaining in the streets. Everybody say, fight for good tools. You know, they say, oh, the world's going to collapse, it's going to fall apart. I can tell you right now, who, the people that have the tools are the people that are going to be in a different place. Uh, your money ain't going to be worth anything, but your tools will be worth something. Fight for good tools, fight for good accounting, fight for good security for our homes and businesses, fight for good health so that we live long and strong lives and produce for many good years. No complaining in our streets. See, that's the goal. Workers, not gossipers. Diligence, not merely debate and indecision. Strike out and do something bold for God's kingdom. Fight the good fight of faith as Paul did. Get under your body. Put into submission. Work like it all depends on you. But no, it all depends on him. This is how we work joyfully. It's how we evangelize joyfully. And I'll close with this little story here. There was this man uh, who was kind of what we call a little smarty pants guy. And he's at this gathering of these uh, ministers and they're all sitting up there on the stage and he's got a question and he's going to stump them. He said, if God's sovereign and he's sovereign over everything, including who gets saved and not saved, then why would you waste your time evangelizing? And I mean, it was like, it was like the quickest thing I've seen. This well-dressed, good-looking black man grabs the microphone and he says two words. He says, guaranteed success. Drop the mic. <laughs> Why should we work? Because we win. Why should we fight? Because we're going to win. We cannot lose. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the living God. We will see a world turn from the rule of the devil and the world and the nasty people that want to crush people and put people under their feet and control them into the freedom of the spirit. God is saving the world and he's doing it through us. And for that to happen, we must fight. And so we pray today. What do we pray? Oh, Lord, train our hands to fight. Train our hands for war and our fingers to fight. Happy is the people. This is the last verse that is in such a case. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Amen. You know, if we got blessed homes and blessed children and good tools and prosperous businesses and uh, the Lord is uh, crushing our enemies under our feet, we're going to be a happy people. We ain't going to have a lot to complain about. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word as it has gone forth. I pray, Lord, that we would think about it, Lord, that we would find ourselves in a place where we are praying. And this has become our prayer today. Teach my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Thank you so much for joining us today. I pray your time with us was very encouraging. If it was, 
consider sending us a note and also consider partnering with us.